Welcome to episode number 44, Hell Police Radio. I'm your host, Alpha Mike. What are we going to be talking about today? In the ghetto. What constitutes a ghetto? How much does it cost the police? And do we still police them as effectively as we did in the 60s and the 70s on the next L Police Radio? Episode 44, 4-4 in the ghetto as we continue to build our library of law enforcement uh, podcast and throw out or spit out that knowledge about the subject. Today we're going to talk about in the ghetto, the enforcement of the ghetto, what constitutes a ghetto, the type of enforcement and budgets that existed in the 60s and 70s probably in the height of some of the ghettos during the riot eras and so forth. And are they the same dollars today? And more importantly, are there more resources? And if there are more resources, do they affect other areas of enforcement? So we got a lot to talk about. We're going to come up with our three stories like we always do on our El Police Radio Countdown. Our last podcast, I told you guys, and I was uh, very excited about the lpoliceradio.com, uh, our website where you can go now and you can pick up some products there and tactical gear that will not break the budget. They're still on there. We have from optics to tactical belts, uh, sunglasses. Remember, we talked about those. You don't want to wear a pair of sunglasses and tactical if somebody throws a punch at you or a rock or or even in a, in a, in a shootout. You want eye protection that's durable. So we've got that. They're not going to break the bank. All these things are not going to break the bank. And um, we came up with watches now, law enforcement, durable watches. Uh, they range in price uh, from 99 to about 350 now, that's a little bit on the pricey side compared to what we have out there. But uh, we're going to switch this out every three, about three or four months and put some new recommendations on there. Why do we keep it? Now, there are people that might say, well, I can get what you're offering at a better quality and probably at a better price tag or higher higher price tag. That's probably true, but that's not our intent. Our intent is not to break the bank. And as I explained in the last episode, and I used the sunglasses as an example, it's about 13 and change, I believe they cost. Durable, easy glasses, and you can uh, tap on the link and learn about it on lpoliceradio.com. But you can buy multiples. You can buy maybe two or three or four of these pair and different uh, type frames or different type of uh, lens. And um, they're all going to have the same durability. And that's what you want. You don't want a pair of sunglasses that the first time something pops off, you're standing there looking like Elmer Fudd. 
So that's that's why we have so many um, suggestions on tactical wear to make you not break the bank and look good. That's the intent. So we're excited about that, and we're going to keep that growing. Uh, we also have, as we've always said on lpoliceradio.com on the upcoming shows, we've got shows all the way up into November 2018, and there's a whole list of them there. Then we're going to start after our September show, which will be our anniversary show, we're going to start bringing in some some guests or our regular panel. We're, we're going to convey a regular panel that's going to come out here and, and uh, we're going to shoot the breeze on certain subjects. And once in a blue moon, you're going to have a guest. But we're also going to implement after September the 09 training hour. And that's uh, going to be on a subject. Right now we do maybe five, possibly ten minutes on, on a small little segment. But we're going to start kicking out our shows once a month. That means there will be how many shows, kids? Once a month, an hour show. And that will mean in the back row. Yeah, you with the head down. You don't know. Okay. That would make 12 shows for the year. So 12 shows kicking off in September to September 2019. We will have 10 09 training tip, one hour long shows. So we're excited about that as well. It's always a lot of work. I remember I told you to do an hour on El Police Radio, you got to kick out one to two hours of research and another one to two hours of uh, editing. And then you want to hear uh, the show in pre-production. So that's, you got to, you know, hear the whole show That's a, in, a, in its entirety. So that's another hour. So that's what one hour produces. You got about six hours. Six hours to hear one hour. So that that tells you everything. All right, let's go off into the uh, news countdown. Let's get this ball rolling. One. A first news report article is on the NYPD and uh, their response to an IG or Inspector General report. Remember, that's the flavor of the month now, the Inspector General's investigations. And uh, they are responding to an Inspector General report on the agency. And here's what we got. The NYPD released a response to this scathering Inspector General report on Tuesday, stating that they were working to strengthen and bolster the Special Victims Division while working, while talking, taking issues with some of the IG's findings. So when they say we're working, that means you got busted. And then, uh, you know, we're looking at the other aspect of it and so forth. So they got busted. Well, what are you going to do? You know, every once in a while, you got you to gotta make guilt. Rape and sexual assault are among the most traumatic and horrific crimes someone could ever experience, Commissioner James P. O'Neill said in a statement. I kid around, you know, they are doing a good job, but I think he's uh, too much of a, you know, kissy-kissy up to the mayor too much. The NYPD is deeply committed in doing everything we can to not only apprehend offenders and stop assault, but to ensure every survivor feels they are safe and supported and support they need from our department to come forward and bravely seek justice. The NYPD responds, highlighting a top-to-bottom review of the SVD as part of the reorganization of the of the Detective Bureau. Now, they've fallen from grace big time from the old days when you could go on TV and listen to this. Based offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, the dedicated detectives who investigate these vicious felonies are members of an elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These are their stories. Boy, talk about falling from grace. From law and order to we're fixing the problem. But that's the way it is. 
You know, sometimes you're on top, sometimes you're not. Overall, the crime rate, I believe, is low. But, uh, you know, there's some uh, finagling over at the controller's office with who's got what and what they're enforcing. Remember, they're not enforcing marijuana. They're not enforcing um, your allowed special areas so you can hit up with the heroin. So uh, the mayor, the mayor over there is doing some great jobs. And don't forget, we always have the domestic terrorists, if you remember that show. Who are the domestic terrorists? Going once, come on, in the back row, anybody? That's right, the lawyers. The lawyers. The lawyers will file lawsuits to slow down the progress of the NYPD. The lawyers. All right, number two. This one's on the California jail system, and they're talking about the deaths could have been, uh, deaths that happened in custody could have been a lot lower, a lot lower. Uh, Orange County, Florida, nearly half of the 34 deaths at the Orange County Jail, and that's Orange County, California, over the past three years could have been avoided if the Sheriff's Department and medical staff paid more attention to health issues according to a report issued Monday by the Orange County Grand Jury. The citizens group found that inmates sometimes didn't get into housing medical treatment when necessary, weren't diagnosed properly for pre-existing health problems or mental illness, and didn't get outside medical help in any timely manner. Those issues in the jails the grand jury wrote, increase the chance that an inmate will not make it out alive. Sheriff Sandra Hutchison responded that her department is very concerned about inmate safety and avoiding jail death. However, she added that state law to reduce prison overcrowding has increased the number of drug-using criminals along with their health issues in local jails. Each death is tragic, but the long-term health consequences of drug abuse are difficult to remedy with even the best medical care. Hutchinson said, the lesson from the report is that the efforts to combat drugs, drug addiction, drug trafficking, and other rooted cause of drug dependency must continue. The report noted problems were beyond drug use. After study... The autopsy of the 34 people who died while in custody a short, a shortly after leaving jail, the grand jury found rampant undiagnosed illnesses, including two cases of HIV and 17 cases of herp, herpes. Additionally, the grand juries found 14 of 34 inmates had not been tested for tuberculosis, failure to detect uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV at the intake release center plus the jail population and staff at risk for these diseases the grand jury wrote the report also noted that nine of 20 inmates who received cpr suffered three or more broken ribs are you kidding a broken sternum and damaged internal organs excessive rate of injury according to american heart association guidelines (laughs) uh this is it's not clear if all the problems described in the report are worse in Orange County than they are in other jails. The report did not study the death rate of other jails or offered the statistical data to show if the death rate in Orange County jail is higher or lower than the average. The jail system is one of the largest in the nation, processing more than 50,000 bookings each year and housing more than 6,000 inmates a day. Well, first of all, on the issue of the CPR, well, if you break ribs, that means there were good compressions because you do them hard and fast, about two inches in debt. Okay, so um, I don't know where they're going with that one. And on the other issue of not receiving proper medical treatment, well, it's hard when you come in all messed up uh, with, with a lower percentage life rate already, and then you're thrown into the jail and people have to try to figure out what to give you and when to give you and how much to give you. And uh, sometimes the turnaround time is not fast enough. Irregrettable, but as uh, a corrections director in Miami-Dade said, Timothy Ryan, 
people die in jail. All right, number three. Three. And our last article deals with some of our wacky left people, partners in, in this crime rate. And um, this is from the Justice Policy Institute, or the Che Guevara community. And they, I'm not really going to read any of their stories because I'm not really going to justify anything they talk about. But they have articles here. And uh, listen, I, I don't ever tell anybody not to read or explore or research what some of these lunatics are coming up with. You can read between the lines if you're smart enough what's right and what's wrong and what's their their sick twist to everything. There's always a sick twist in everything they say. But they do talk on some of these articles about um, patrolling of, uh, of housing projects and so forth. And uh, although the report is a little on the lengthy side, I leave it out there. I will link the actual uh, section so you guys can read it if you would like to for your reading enjoyment. But um, they kind of have a sick twist, and this is why I'm not going in this direction. It, it's a report that uh, they tabulated from 2017. So that's about right. Kind of hard to tabulate a 2018 report when you're in the middle of the year of 2018. So this is about 2017. The cost of criminalization, exploring the intersections between criminal justice and immigration. So you see where that's going. And um, so I'm not really going to look into it. But the flavor of the day has gone to immigration. And you, whoever you ask, you have two different types of opinion. One is that Im illegal immigrants produce a high crime rate or a higher crime rate in all given communities. Or the other spin twist from the, our twisted sisters are that immigration, illegal immigrants, there is no real logical study that they produce more crime in America. What? So, uh, again, the Twisted Sisters, you can only take them for what they're worth. Won't read it, but I'll link it. And you can look at it. You can read it. You can kick it around, see how you, how you like the hinges on the, on the door and the door handles and kick the tire. But I'm not going to read it because uh, then I would have to probably get my communist membership card sent to me in the mail, and uh, I don't think so. I guess the bugler got tired of me calling him out, and uh, he just started what the hell whenever he wanted. But anyway, we were finished. Episode 44 in the ghetto. I'm your host, Alpha Mike, and we are talking about in the 60s, and 70s, ghettos or barrios were easily identifiable in any major city by linking the following. Where is the criminal justice courtroom? Where is the jailhouse? And where is the housing projects? Now, if you kind of link those three elements somewhere in that neighborhood, you would classify two areas, one called a ghetto and the other one, a barrio, which is translation to ghetto, I guess. Now, ghetto is, is not a unique term only to a segment of community or given race of people. Ghettos, uh, believe it or not, you have ghettos and uh, what my buddy used to call ridge runners in West Virginia that produce moonshine and they live off the side of the mountain in these little huts. Well, that's called the ghetto. So, and they're not necessarily out of what the stereotype is when you say the word ghetto. <clears throat> now, that was our disclaimer. We're going to stick by that one. But in the in the 60s and 70s, they started building these housing projects. 
some of the major cities like New York and Chicago, these big buildings went up. And it was Section 8 housing. Poor people were being moved in there. And things looked good. You know, it was a liberal approach. Uh, everything was going good. The uh, inhabitant of the apartment complex would basically pay a small percentage of the amount of money they were making to pay for their rent. And they're very, very small. That's what I call Section 8. And uh, very small, small amounts. But these housing projects uh, turned into uh, criminal, high-level criminal activity. And a lot of the criminal activity were hiding behind these poor individuals that lived in these communities. Now, overall, when any barrio or, or ghetto that you might go to in, in America, you have two types of people. Uh, the first group are your criminal element that they have nothing freaking better else to do than vandalize the people that live in the community by robbing them, stealing from them, pillaging them, raping them. And then, of course, we've got to make sure that they feel good so we provide them with enough drugs. Then the second element are working-class people that, no fault of their own, maybe based on uh, education, maybe based on just having bad luck, they can't get the jobs that they really need. Maybe some of them have passed priors, but now they want to be on the straight and narrow, and the amount of money they're going to make an hour just doesn't have them move over to uh, the Coral Gables or the Beverly Hills section of town, so they're stuck in areas that are a little bit poorer. They're now they're, as you can see, stuck in the ghetto or in the barrio. Now, hardworking, and a lot of them wish that the crime rate was not as high because they only can afford to live there. So crime goes underreported in these areas because of people's personal safety. You just don't witness a murder and then call the cops and say, so-and-so just killed somebody. I'm in apartment 207 when you, whenever you want so you can get my statement. That doesn't work that way. Everybody that lives in a barrio or in a ghetto is blind, deaf, and they can't figure two and two is four for their own safety reasons, of course. Not necessarily that it's true. So 60s and 70s were mass producing these warehouses and the crime rate starts shooting up through the roof. I was going to bore you with some of the numbers and statistics on how much uh, law enforcement was providing, but it was still a little bit too erratic. And the numbers compared in the 60s and the 70s to today, don't, they don't even translate well. But there was, at first, there wasn't a high intensity in the 60s to combat any crime in these projects because they were supposed to be wonder projects. People were supposed to all of a sudden uh, become cured of, of being poor for living in these projects, and a magic wand would come out. And we all know that didn't happen. So in the 70s, there was a strong concentration of enforcement. And of course, that carries into the 80s and 90s, especially in our crack cocaine era, where the you-know-what hits the, the fan. But now, because of different political arenas, and the point that I want to make is that don't ever underestimate the governments that you live in. They are the orchestra, and everybody else dances to the music that the conductor produces from the orchestra. And they basically have created these projects, these high crime areas, and then they fundle it with uh, limited resources to try to combat the crime. You see that in Chicago with the death rate that's through the roof and everybody, what's going on, what's going on? Well, the amount of money that you're, or resources that you're throwing at the problem is very limited. So you're never going to bring those numbers down.
Now, there's another issue that came up maybe a, over a decade ago. And I give you an example of uh, Miami, where I was, came from. I was born and raised in New York City. Don't get it twisted. But I lived in Miami for 34 years. And when I was in Miami, and there was a community I lived in called Miami Lakes, and they had a police station there from Miami-Dade Police Department, which was Station 1. And, you know, going back over a decade, Miami Lakes community was overall a very peaceful community. It was uh, sandwiched in between the um, Country Club of Miami, and then they would uh, go into the next county, which was Broward County, uh, on the north, and on the south was Hialeah, which was a high, highly Hispanic barrio area. But by and large, they didn't go into Miami Lakes because there was high price, high price living there in Miami Lakes. And, um, and then you had on on the uh, east side, you would have um, a corner of, um, that would nestle around an area called Opalaca, the beginning of Opalaca. And then just uh, north of that, northeast of that, would be Carroll City or what's today Miami Gardens. So kind of surrounded by a little more higher crime rate than Miami Lakes. And when, over a decade ago, residents in Miami Lakes started complaining. Now, how this was highlighted was the Miami Lakes became its own town. It, it left inco incorporated Miami-Dade County and incorporated as a town, but they contracted the Miami-Dade Police Department as their police department. So it's, you know, same police car, Miami-Dade, same uniform, same everything. They're just contracting the local uh, county police department to patrol their little town, which is Miami Lakes. But they had some contract uh, language in there. Well, the residents started getting pissed off because they would call for minor issues sometimes. You know, uh, somebody took my bike in front of my house or uh, I can't find Wally the cat. We don't know. We haven't seen him in three days. So they call the cops. The cops would take forever to show up. And all you would hear was blazing sirens going east and northeast to the higher crime rate areas. They were pulling them from Miami Lakes District, Area 1, into these other districts to back up the officers that worked there on a permanent basis because there wasn't enough in these areas. So they would pull from the better areas to help the crime-ridden areas. Well, the you-know-what hit the fan again, and now the language in the contract was is, uh, police officers cannot leave the city or the town. They have to remain there. Now, I don't know exactly what the language is today, but I'm just giving you a synopsis of what had happened and how it, it transformed. And no different from if Miami Lakes would have had their own police department, forget the county, and they would have had the Miami Lakes Police Department. Well, they weren't going to allow their police department to go handle calls in other cities. So they felt that the county, even though they contracted them, they shouldn't be going out and playing Superman someplace else either. Now, of course, that's negated if there's uh, an emergency where an officer shot an officer down or something like that, they're going to cross those jurisdiction lines all over, not only from the Miami Lakes area, but they're going to come from the Hialeah area and all over. Wherever police officers are assigned to, they will break those jurisdictional lines to respond to that call within a given um, location or, or distance. So here we notice that the taxpaying group, higher bracket taxpayer group, are paying for law enforcement services, but their officers were pulled to go to areas where the crime was higher, and they, residents of Miami Lakes, that were paying for their service, were basically put on hold because their officers were floating around 
playing Superman in these high crime areas. So we look at the same notion of what happened in these public uh, housing development areas. There were certain issues that were arising there too. New York City fixed that by combining. See, prior to the NYPD, as large as it is now, I believe it's 35,000 officers. They're trying to get to 40, I hear. But they're somewhere in 35, 36, whatever the hell it is. But anyway, it's a lot of cops. And um, before they were merged, uh, about 20 years ago, they had the New York City Housing Police. Now, there's the New York City Housing Authority, and they fund, because they have a fund from people in the housing projects that will pay for security or police. And that roughly comes to about $70 million in New York City. And they and that funds the NYPD's housing police section that they have now. But prior to 20 years ago, there was their own housing police. They were separate from NYPD. Same thing with the transit. There was the New York City Transit Police, totally different from the NYPD. So these elements were merged together to form one major police department in the city of New York known as the NYPD or the New York City Police Department. So we we focus in and we're going to I'm going to read some statistical gathering issues that I found in research for this on um, the police budget and some interesting statistics I'll be posting this on lpoliceradio.com on the show notes. And it is t- it's the budget for 2018. Uh, yeah, well, for 2019. I'm sorry, it was com- it was uh, developed uh, March of 2018, and it's the proposal for the 2019 budget. So, we'll scroll down to page 30 where we have the housing uh, police section and what they're currently spending. And now they go back about four years. And they can basically, that's how they network on uh, are we spending more or less. They usually do five-year projects, but um, here they're, they're backtracking 16, 17, 18, and then they're looking at 19. So three years they go back, one year they go forward. But um, in the housing Let's look at uniform patrol. So this is the amount of officers they had in New York City. Now, we're using New York City, and we'll get back. We're going to jump into the Department of Justice in a minute. But this is the largest police department in the United States. It's also the one with the biggest budget. I believe it's $4.6 billion is the NYPD's budget. So we look at the uniform personnel that they have in housing projects. Housing projects are located in all boroughs. Boroughs are counties or sections or townships in New York City. There are five. The Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, okay, and Staten Island. Those are the five. Now, from there, in 2016, the uniform patrol or the uniform officers represented 2,000 197 officers. 2017, they boosted it up to 2,244, and that stayed the same in 18, and it is projected the same, stay the same in 2019. So there's an uptick. Now remember, New York City's crime rate has gone down, but now, remember I said they're trying to get to 40,000 police officers. You got to put them somewhere. So they're throwing them in the housing. It's not very much the uptick. Uh, what is that, 246 extra police officers? I'm sure their command are happy to have them. Now let's take a look at the budget. In 2016, you had 182,687,000. 17, you had 200,546,000 to be exact. And 2018, 
you have 200,926,000. So uh, they have gone up uh, about 400,000 since 2017. But there's an uptick there too. So what they are doing is a lot of housing projects, and I have an article on that, and I'm going to, now this is going, this is going back to 2013, okay? Policing the projects in New York City, the hefty price. This is 2013, remember. After riding the elevators to the top floor of the building in the Lewis H. Pink housing in Brooklyn, scanning rooftops, the police officers made their way back down floor by floor, searching the stairwell and hallways on the sixth floor, stumbling against their their stairs was a man who said he was waiting for his ex-girlfriend. The officers ran a warrant check on the 49-year-old man and arrested him after learning he was wanted for parole violation. You never know what you're going to find, said one of the officers, Sergeant Marshall Winston, who has police uh, public housing for 23 years. Sometimes we catch somebody with the gun, other times we catch somebody with drugs, and sometimes you just catch somebody down on their luck, like the poor sucker that was in the hallway. The patrols known as vertical verticals are painstaking police work, and for the New York City Housing Authority, they don't come cheap. About 2,000 officers are assigned to the projects, and the New York City Housing Authority as the authority is known, pays the police department about $70 million. The payment is the legacy of the merger that brought the Transit and Housing Authority police forces into the, NY, into the New York Police Department almost 20 years ago. But the Housing Authority increasingly strained, strained finance, finances has focused attention on the payments and the mayor-elect Bill de Blasio, remember this is 2013, Mayor Che, who will be sworn in on Wednesday, oh, God help us, has promised to end them. At the forum doing the mayoral campaign, De, De Bozo said the money was taken on to assumption that the New York City, uh, the New York City Housing Authority was just awash in federal money. All these wonderful resources coming into New York City Housing Authority and that hasn't been true for decades. Now, why wasn't it true? If now the the false police was belief was that the federal government was pouring money into the housing authorities, and nothing could be further from the truth. The Fed stopped funding these things because remember they built them in the '60s, '70s, and so, and so all money is attached to the federal government like highways. You ever see the freeway? Well, don't say freeway in California because that's very personal. But you have these highways, like in Miami. I'll give you an example. I-95 was a freeway. It was it was free. You could thorough through there. Okay, it was Interstate 95. Well, the federal government basically only provided enough resources for 30, 40, whatever amount of years it was. Then it was given to the local government. Now you fend for yourself. Well, how are we going to pay for the upkeeping on I-95? Well, that's your business. So now they have these atrocious tolls all over the place, and trolls all over the place. Just, just nickel and diming you to death to go from one block to the next. But remember, it used to be free. So the housing projects are the same. They used to have tabs on them, but now the Fed said, no, 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 no. Well, we're through with that. And now they're coming down. And city governments are coming up with multi-economic um, living conditions. In other words, we're not sticking all the poor people in the building. We're putting some people that are middle class, some people based uh, on their financing of um, maybe they're single and they have a good job. They're throwing them in there with people less fortunate and that multi-view uh, is they believe that people will take more ownership for what they have 
and report crime if crime gets there. They're also getting away from the uh, the project or the project housing that looks like a jail, and kind of uh, coming up with something that looks more of a of a small little home or something like that in some jurisdictions. But they're not funding it the way they used to. Now, what the hope is, and everybody's hope is, that crime will go down. Well, I'm again remembering on my shows, my uh, I have an upcoming show of Narco, and uh, we had the, we had the show Narco Forty One, and we spoke about Mark Levine, the DEA agent, and his book about how the CIA funneled large amounts of cocaine to the United States for dis- distribution in the poor black communities and um, Latino communities for whatever purpose the CIA did that and how some CIA leaders became very rich. And just for the sake of argument, we'll post on our show notes here um, Mark Levine's um, um, book, and uh, the big white lie it's called. And um, we'll post that uh, on um, on the show notes so you can see it. Now, <coughs> excuse me. What you will notice is that the development of some of these housing projects, they're enormous. So not all of them are coming down now. They'll be standing in front of the project saying, when, when, yeah, I heard you're coming down. Some of them are not. Some of them, they're getting the criminals out of there. And they're flipping the tenants. You know, if you're a known nuisance or a troublemaker, out you go. And then you'll be replaced with somebody that meets the new criteria. Law enforcement has a tough job of becoming equitable and fair. And you break things up in simplistic terms, such as uh, sectors. So you have X amount of officers, deputies to a sector that are assigned a supervisor or a sergeant to supervise them. And those numbers are pretty common across the board. They go based on population. So that doesn't change when you get to the high crime area. So in order for police officials to ask government officials, I need more money, you have to start showing statistics and proof and documentation as to why. And some of them do it. I'm not saying they don't. But it has always been a real problem in the middle-class communities that they feel that they're being shortcutted because their resources in policing are going in the opposite direction of where they are. Now, we're not going to be able to address if that's good or bad. I think it's bad because you're the sucker that has to be waiting. But what I meant to say is we don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. I don't have enough statistics to tell you every agency in America, whether they're content with what they have now or not. Now, let's take a quick look at uh, this program called COPS, the Justice Department. They basically supply supply grants for law enforcement agencies under the the COP program, and they have community policing, of course, and they, they have all the elements are still there, but surprisingly... Everything now has a different tone, and some of the tone that they're using is to stop terrorism or immigration issue. That's the federal government's money, so the federal government will break out the orchestra, and the pitmaster will start to conduct. And regardless of whoever's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, for those of you that don't know, that's the White House. Some people looking it up in their, their Google, Google, Google it. If it's on Google, it's true. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that's the White House. Whoever's in the White House, they control the orchestra and the orchestra pit and the conductor. And they will play that music. 
So the music that's being played now talks more about resources and community re, uh, grant programs um, that are tied towards safety, um, illegal immigration, and terrorist uh, type of, I don't want to say programs, because they're not programs, but uh, watch committees or, and things like that. So where you used to see them, community grants for a little bit high crime rates, you don't see them as prevalent on the COP website. And we're going to publish the COP website, which is a part of the Department of Justice, on their grant programs. You don't see as much about projects and communities as you used to see now there's also a big emphasis on school resource officers and schools, which is quite natural because of recent incidents that have occurred. So the federal government is putting a lot of attention on immigration, terrorism, and school resource through the COPS or the grant program to fund or help assist law enforcement agencies in uh, attacking or suppressing crime. Most of the crime, of course, where it would be more critical is in the high crime areas that usually by statistical gathering, we know, come out of poor cities. So there you have it, folks. Uh, we don't know what these new experimental procedures will really pay us in dividends, but I'm pretty sure that the recipe is a little bit better than what it was. Our public housing areas uh, were a quick identifier for a ghetto, and the crime rates were high. We still have high ghettos, uh, crime rates, and high barrios with crime rates. They still have to be attacked aggressively. I used as an element to comprise um, this story, I used public housing. Now, I know there'll be some haters out there because you're on public housing, don't mean you're a criminal. Never said that. Remember, we said there's two type of people that live in public housing. Now, come on now. You can hit the rewind button and hear me all over again. So time will tell if these new things that they're doing will help. I can only hope so. Now it's time for the 09 training tip. You know, I was shocked to learn when I was in Miami Dade and I was part of the training section, we had to do some cross references with other jurisdictions. And I was surprised to learn that some law enforcement agencies did not have first responder duties as far as when it came to CPR. Even I was also surprised that the New York City Police Department is one of those when we had a couple of incidents where a person was um, uh, choked to death and the police officers are standing around and they're calling uh, an ambulance, That's like they say, they call, call for an ambulance. Uh, what which we recall here in uh, Miami, uh, Florida, we say fire rescue. And because they weren't really certified in CPR. Now, some are, some aren't. And uh, I'm not picking only on the NYPD. I'm talking about Chicago and the totality of some of these jurisdictions. You come down to Florida, and I think every officer and every deputy does CPR. They carry defibrillators in the trunk of their vehicles, which the uh, defibrillator is an outstanding a utility you can use in case of that life-threatening circumstances, you have to pull it out. For every minute that you lose in applying a defibrillator, you might have 10% loss of life. So if a person goes down and it takes you five minutes to get there with a defibrillator, 
basically that person has a 50% chance of living. So what we want to discuss today is if you're in law enforcement and your agency specifically does not task you with the duty of being a first responder in life-threatening issues or life-saving issues, they negate, they gave that duty to the fire department. I want to talk about deliberate indifference. And the act of deliberate indifference is standing around doing nothing. Or a better analogy of taking your thumbs and placing them up your, you got the point. You don't want to do that, especially in today's society where people can record you very easily with their cameras. You want to be what I used to call when I was an instructor, an active participant. You want to be actively involved in that scene, whether you're securing people, whether you're preparing the scene by, let's say that the person had a heart attack or was having a heart attack, or one of the suspects got shot. You see this a lot on TV. They'll shoot, the suspect goes down, they point their guns at him a while, all that is within tactics, and I'm agreeing with all that. But after a while, we know that the scene is safe. We've kicked the gun away. We've done a preliminary search of the suspect. We can't just stand there and look at him and wait for the fire department to show up. We've got to be an active participant in this person's recovery effort. And the only way we can do that is to be a first responder. So I'm a firm believer in if your agency doesn't require you, that's good. If they don't train you or they train you haphazardly, then I say go out and get your own training. Because when I was an instructor, I, I loved all those stories when I would hear and officers say how they actually use CPR, not necessarily on duty, but off duty as well. And sometimes there were cases where they saved their own uh, loved ones. And you can't ever, ever repay anybody for teaching you anything such as that. That's the greatest gift that you can give. So part of the training tip that we're giving today, hard and fast are or the compressions, if you don't have a barrier between your lips and the person that you're giving uh, CPR to and they need oxygen, remember, you're not going to put your lips on them. Let me repeat that again for the knuckleheads in the audience. You will not put your mouth on somebody else's mouth you don't know. Now, if they're a loved one and you feel that you have to, then go ahead. But remember... You, as the lifesaver, can also become ill as a result. And there was a case in Florida where a deputy saved the, attempted to save the life of a, a small infant, giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And he swallowed uh, throw-up from the child, and as a result, he died. Several years later, it wasn't uh, right away, but he died, and uh, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement in Florida said, hey, if you don't have a barrier, you will not put your lips on a suspect or a victim's lips. You'll have to use an ambu bag or something else, a two-way valve or something in order to do that. So compressions is your number one. You want to keep that heart breathing, moving. You want to continually uh, giving those compressions Lock your elbows, get close to the body, interlace your fingers, and you want to hit them hard and fast. You want those. Now, you want the compressions to go all the way down and all the way up. So when I say fast, you don't want to do half-assed ones either. You know, okay? Like these people, when they do push-ups and they're faking it, you want to go all the way down all the way up, all the way down and all the way up. And about uh, an inch and a half to two inches on an adult and you want to make sure, even if everything else fails, those compressions continue to save a human life. And now it's time to hop on the motorcycle and hit the conversation.
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. Blessed is that man. So that man that believes that there is a supreme being, that man that not only believes, knows that that supreme being is there to help him, to guide him, to strengthen him, to uplift him, and to protect him. That being that has a relationship with you to basically strengthen you and give you the greatest gift that you could ever receive, and that is salvation. When you and I repent of our sins, recognize our sins, have a grateful heart for our salvation, God starts his journey with you. So blessed is the man that has his trust in that living God. You read the one sentence, and we're going to put them on lpoliceradio.com on the show notes. And you say, oh, right, that makes sense. But there's so much that goes into that small phrase, places his trust. What does that mean? Well, that basically means that his being, his existence on, in life is placed on this entity. So the Lord says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He's blessed. And whose hope is in the, in the Lord. His hope. His hope is in the Lord. That says it all. And with hope comes a lot of aspirations and a lot of things you want to see. But with hope, you can't necessarily see those things. So you move by faith. Your faith grows. And through that growing faith, you have pleased God. This is the beginning of salvation. Understanding and recognizing that there's something for you to put your trust in. And that something is the Lord Jesus Christ. What's up next? Well, 45, episode 45. And what are we going to talk about? Oath of office. Many of us lifted our right hand, read to us was an oath. We repeated it. And what in the world does it really mean? Do I live by that oath? Is the oath more profound and more rooted than we even know? Is, does the oath have its own society, its own way of thinking? Does the oath make you or break you? How many people have been in law enforcement and they have broken their oath? Never gotten caught, but they broke their oath. They retired or they're still there. What does the oath mean to them? Do they even care? The oath of office. We're going to talk about that uh, July 25th, number 45. And we're going to break it down. What exactly does that oath do to you? We always are encouraged when you are a listener of lpoliceradio.com. You can always look us up there, drag all the way down to the bottom. Those show notes will come up. And the icons for social networking. Remember my handle, Alpha Mike 2017 on Twitter. All one word, small capital letters. I don't, I don't even think that makes a difference, but small Alpha Mike 2017. And you can go on there. And I post things about future shows that are coming out there. And I definitely uh, state my political opinion, especially in today's Bolshevik communist society, don't be silent. Be brave. Now, let's do a little recap of what we got. Well, a couple of things that we talked about today in the ghetto, 
episode 44, is that whoever runs the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, controls the orchestra. And today they're talking about immigration, they're talking about uh, terrorists, and they're also talking about school safety. That's overcome a lot. Thank you for listening. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. Long live the Republic.